All right, so um, today's passage breaks up into three main parts. The first three verses is going to talk about who people were before they followed Jesus. So this is like the pre-Christian you. Now, some of you guys are still not Christians. You're not followers of Jesus. Well, then this describes your heart. Now, I'm not judging your heart. May the Holy Spirit use this time to maybe shine a mirror into, you know, where your heart is at. And if this is where if he's working and you have questions and what's so not. This is not personal. Us judging you, me judging you. This is just me speaking what God is word, God's word has said. Uh, but we would love to then continue to talk as you, through today's message, are able to see and have a clear understanding of the gospel. So this is who everyone was before God acted. Okay, so the first few verses are going to address that. So let me go ahead and um, read verse 1 right here. So verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, so these three verses break down a few things about us, okay? It tells us who we are, it tells us how we lived, and it tells us what we were before God saved us. Oh, I'm sorry, what we were is first, okay? So the very first thing that this passage tells us is in verse 1. And this is not, you know, kind of clouded at all or not confusing at all. But in verse 1, who were you? You are dead. Okay, we understand that. We can relate to that. We know when people are alive. We know, we think, when people are dead, and then, you know, there's vital signs that confirm it, then we know for sure they're dead. We know when people are playing dead, but that's because they're acting like they're dead, but we still kind of know the difference between living and dead. Well, the Bible says that before God saved you, you were dead. And it's qualified by this. What does deadness look like? Deadness looks like a life that engages and is committed to and, and prioritizes trespasses and sin. Okay, so a trespass is a breaking of a law. It's a crossing of a barrier that, that you shouldn't cross. And if God is perfect and holy, and he's given a law that reveals his character, and he's also put it in people's consciences of what is right and wrong in Romans 1, that when we trespass that, when you break that, when you do something that is opposed to God's law, then that makes you dead. If you're continuously sinning, rebelling against God, turning your face away from God, living for your own glory and joy and priorities instead of God, then you are dead. And we saw this a little bit earlier in chapter 1, that we saw that God did all of this in saving people. Why? To bring glory to himself. And when you sin, you are pretty much doing the opposite. Right? So every time you sin, don't think about, oh man, I committed this sin, and it's like this degree, or I committed this sin, and it's that serious. No, every sin, big or little, you're saying, God, I'm going to turn away from you, and I'm going to do my own thing, even if it's like one millimeter of this thing, versus a foot of this thing, or a mile of this thing. But it's running in the opposite direction every time you sin. And so when you sin, it robs God of his glory. It pretty much speaks to, of your heart and to the world, that what God wanted, who he is, how I can live for him, I will not do that. But yet we see that God's intent, even in saving a people for himself, is to bring glory to himself. 
that creation would worship him, that his people would live for his glory. If God is the giver of life and the author of life, then sinning against him and breaking his law kills you one step at a time, like an illness that worsens. But see, you were born this way. Everyone was born this way. It's convenient to have a baby in a room when you realize how total depravity works. That it's not so much that our salvation, our relationship with God is horizontal, as in John here has sinned way less than me. I mean, really, he has way less than me. But it's not about a horizontal comparison. But it's that John was born with a sinful heart like the rest of us. So he hasn't sinned as much as you guys, but even being alive physically, he is dead spiritually because in his heart flows out sinful acts. Even though he probably didn't even understand what it is. That's the beauty of babies. You just enjoy that, right? About them, this innocence. But we're born with a sinful heart. And so we're then born with a factory that manufactures trespasses and sin in our desire. And so as we get older, as we become more mature, as we learn more things in life, we grow to be better sinners. Not because we sin that we're sinners, but it's because we are sinners, so we sin. Do you see that? That we're going to sin. It's not like somebody can live just long enough and you cross your fingers long enough, then you're good to go. No, it's we're born with sinful hearts. And so we're going to sin. And it's a matter of degree, it's a matter of you know, quantity, but we're going to sin. So what did verse 1 say? That what separates you, what kills you, is trespasses and sins. So this idea of total depravity is this, is that our relationship with God is hopelessly broken. It is severed by our existence. And if there's nothing we can do, no matter how innocent we might appear, no matter how hard we try, but that a single trespass and a single sin declares that our lives are in opposition to the one that made us. Our lives do not bring him glory as he intended his creation to do. Then we are in trouble. And that's the doctrine of total depravity. It's not that you are the worst sinner you could possibly be, or that there is no goodness in you because you're image bearers of God. The image has not been destroyed and taken away, but the image has been shattered in you. So you're not who God made you to be originally, but he's not done with you. But we also have to remember that this is the reason why we are hopeless and helpless. If there's nothing within our own resources by which we're able to be good doers in God's eyes to be able to make up for the sins that we have committed. If this is rooted in our desires, in our body, in our minds, then we are in big trouble. I want to turn with us to Galatians 1, a 5. Galatians 5, if you keep your finger in Ephesians, it's pretty close. It's the Actually, for many of you, it might be the page right before. So Ephesians 5, uh, I want to look at 19 and 21, because it speaks about what it looks like when your life is filled with trespasses and sin, okay? So Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to focus on 19 to 21, but let me go ahead and begin reading from 16, and you can listen here. There's a contrast here between two ways of living. 
Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, and you can see that. To keep you from doing the things you want to do if you want to walk in the Spirit. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. However, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I mean, Paul's specific in naming things, but really he's summarizing Ephesians 2, right? That you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You might not have committed the more serious things on this list, but certainly some of the minor things, it's easily crossed our minds if not defined, you know, how we struggle or how we live sometimes. And so no matter how good we think we are, um, horizontally, vertically, we are challenged. This goes back to Dave's sermon, which I love. I loved your sermon. Uh, um, and who we were then is we were children of wrath. Okay? So God is forming people for himself. Children of wrath is the opposite. Children of wrath, that means that it's a group of people for which God's righteous anger should and will land on. Right? He will judge sin. So who are we if we are defined by trespasses and sins? A desire to glorify ourselves rather than God, we are children of wrath. God will eventually, in his justice and holiness, judge people like this. We would all be deserving because God is perfectly holy. He would not sweep this under the rug. So if you think about your own life then, even as Christians, you realize that you struggle with things, right? So this really would feel like probably how we're supposed to make to feel like after Infinity War. Right? You're like, oh, shoot, after everything I was done, he snapped anyway. So snap what? Now, what's going to happen, right? You're supposed to feel that way. The only reason why people will line up for hours and hours to see the next one is because there was the next one. So you know that it didn't end that way. So I'm not spoiling it for anyone, okay? But if it just ended at the end of the Infinity War, you're supposed to be at the point of desperation. There's nothing you could do because everyone's tried everything. Every clever tactic, every formation of people, every, you know, every type of gifts and whatever it is, talents and skills to stop the enemy, enemy triumphs. What do you do now? Half their friends are dead. What do you do? That's exactly where this passage leaves us at the end of verse 3. There's nothing in us that can help us. There's not even our desires that can change anything because we are opposed to God and really we're dead. And a dead body is not a body that you can resuscitate unless you have the power to do that. So let's go ahead and look at verse 4. Verse 4 is the turning point of this passage. Verse 4 is the turning point of everything. It's not just this passage, but verse 4, if you believe it, becomes your core tenet of faith that anchors you on everything in life if you believe this. Okay, verse 4. So I'll go ahead and read it for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there's more, but we've got to stop there. But God. You know who's the only one that can act? Someone more powerful than us. 
You know who's the only one that can change the predicament of a helpless and hopeless people? The one that made them and has the power to save. However, that being said, this God who made us because of his justice and righteousness did not need to do anything else to clear his name. He didn't need to save a bunch of sinners. But God. He didn't need to give rebellious people a second chance. But God. He didn't need to restore people that he has created that are ungrateful, that are pursuing their glory instead of him. But God. See, that but means a complete turn and a complete change in the way that the passage was going and where your situation and my situation was. And then the main character that would act here is God. Because if it was but me, doesn't matter. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins. What can I do to revive myself? If it was but you, but your parents, but your pastor, doesn't matter. But God, things change. Remember last week I talked about the idea of a biblical hope that's different than like a, a kind of a human hope? But human hope is where you kind of throw something out there in the future in like your final grades, whatever. And then you kind of you know, hope that you, know, you did enough to get the grade that you want. Um, a biblical hope would be where you already know your score. Okay? And then you kind of you know, do your thing. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know I have any minus, whatever, so I'm good to go. But you already knew. Okay? A biblical hope is certain. A biblical hope is anchored in truths that are eternal and unchanging and is pretty much guaranteed by the object and the person that secures that hope for you. So a biblical hope is one that is anchored in God's promises. And where we might not know is timing. Where we might not know is how. But biblical hope for something God has promised is one that's secure. It's an anchor for our soul. We could cling to that. And so I read earlier about the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5. Let me go ahead and actually read a little bit more from that section. Because we're going to see a biblical hope. Oh, did I already do this? Okay, I kind of did. But I'll read it again. This is probably why I broke it up earlier. So I want to start reading from 16 again. Here's the biblical hope, okay? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So what is the biblical hope? That if somehow you who are sinners who trespass against God and regularly rob him of his glory could for some reason begin walking in the Spirit? If God can do something so that the Holy Spirit is in the driver's seat of your life, then not only are you not judged by the law, but you will begin producing a different kind of fruit. And that's what is covered after the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so that's the hope, the biblical hope. But see, Paul wouldn't throw it out there. God wouldn't inspire that without recognizing that, you know what? This is a validation and confirmation of actually exactly what he does. That when God saves a people, he makes the biblical hope come to reality. 
So let's go ahead and see how this happens, okay? So, but God is a change of direction and a revelation of his will, okay? That he's going to do something to turn the predicaments of sinful man in the other way, okay? Starting verse 5 then, we start seeing what he does. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul says this again, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's what God chose to do. So where were we before God acted? How were we? Dead. Right? Who were we? Like zombies, the walking dead. Right? You're alive, but you're spiritually dead. Right? What did God do? God pulled a spiritual Lazarus on you. You guys know the story of Lazarus, right? This is from John 11. So Lazarus was a close friend. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. And they lived in Bethany, and they became close friends to Jesus. Now, Lazarus got sick and died, but then as you saw the story being told in John, Jesus had the opportunity to get there early enough to maybe do something about it while he was still on his last breath. But Jesus waited, and he waited four days, because that was customary in religious customs for when someone is finally dead after four days. So Jesus waited. Why, why would you wait for someone to die for sure? It's because you're going to raise them up for sure. That's why he waited. And so long story short, he calls Lazarus and he raises him from the dead. I want to go ahead and read this. This is from John 11. It's, um, see, a lot of the stuff that gets us excited about movies, like, like it's really good. I mean, I, I saw the movie twice and I loved it. It was tremendous. But, but so much of like what you see that we try to create in terms of storylines, I feel like it pales in comparison because what the Bible has said about things that God has done actually happen. It's not fiction. It's actually things that would have you on the edge of your seat. How can this happen? And then it happens because of God. So starting in verse, let's say here, 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Again, God's goal, God's purpose in anything is to the praise of his glory, right? So Jesus is being a part of this. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus looked up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. So people are on the edge of their seat. What's going to happen now? What is Jesus going to do? Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He could have said a lot of other things. But Lazarus, come out. In those three, well, I mean, not necessarily three words, but English words, three words. Lazarus, specific, come out, rise from the dead, and depart from it. In that simple phrase, Jesus is saying, but God, in raising a sinner, in raising someone that has died, in raising someone that had no life left. You specific person 
rise up, and then get out from your grave. You don't belong there anymore. You know, sometimes um, during holidays like Mother's Day or Father's Day, Christmas, whatever it is, you know, sometimes if we've had relatives that pass away, you know, it'd be a family affair to go visit them. It's a meaningful time. I have, I have friends that I do that for too. Uh, there's people that passed away I mean, since they were, you know, 20s and 30s, and they passed away pretty young, and it's kind of impacted me. But why do you go visit them? It's because that's where they are. You're not going to go anywhere else to find them. But if you're part of the living, you visit the cemetery and you leave. Lazarus, come out. You don't belong in the tomb. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was clearly dead, and Jesus clearly raised a dead person into life. That's what God did with us. While we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. The second half of verse 5 is what Gabe's going to preach on next week, verses 8 to 10, where Paul expands on that, as if he wanted the Ephesians to know, you know what, this is so important, this idea of grace, you need to know this. I'm going to write a little bit more after this. Uh, verses 1 through 7 is one sentence. So you can imagine, this is someone in inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he just had this great thing to tell people, and he did. But then he's like, i got to say a little bit more. So verse 5 gets expanded next week. So be here for that. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is what regeneration is. I'll skip the passage with Nicodemus for now. But when Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, he had a question for him. And Jesus pretty much, in his teaching, told them that, you know what? You need to be born again, but I can't tell you when and how it's going to happen. It's a Holy Spirit thing. So when the Holy Spirit makes you born again, as the wind comes and goes and you don't know, you will be born again. That's all I can tell you, Nicodemus. That's all I can say. But you need to be born again. And so we see that's what's happening here. So here's a few things that we see happen. What does made alive in Christ look like? Well, in the first half of verse 6, he raised us up. So when the Bible speaks of this resurrection power of Christ, what we just celebrated in Easter... That's the same power by which you will be born again in the Holy Spirit. That for all of us that are dead in our trespasses and sins, we require that kind of power, that kind of resurrection ability, supernatural ability to change us. But that's exactly what God does. He raises us up. You can imagine as Jesus was being raised from the dead that you could find yourself in there too. It's the same power that raises a sinner to life. That's regeneration. You see in the second half of verse 6, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you're seated with Jesus, it means you have authority. So instead of following the prince of the power of the air, and instead of following and being a son of disobedience, you're above all of those things. And you don't have to follow them. You don't have to be under their authority but you are somebody that is above them. 
and you are following a greater king because he is seated in the heavenly places. And then finally in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wants to show his grace and his power in your life forever. You know why? Because when he does that, creation praises him and gives him glory. When God works in you to change you and to grow you and to humble you and to use you to love and to use you to serve and to use you to go out by faith and to leave your comfort zone and to make disciples and to push back on culture and to push back on worldly, selfish, fleshly desires and actions, he receives the glory. He will continue to do this in our lives. That's why he blesses us. That's why he helps us to grow. That's why we're able to prosper in all the ways that that we do in life, especially in our walk with him, because he is showing his grace and he is showing his power to the world. And he will do this forever. We envision heaven. It is God's people around the throne praising him, worshiping him forever. It's not the only thing we're going to do, but that's the defining aspect of our existence with God is that we will praise him and love him and worship him forever. So why should we be grateful for our salvation? Why should we love the gospel? It's because it is something we do not deserve at all. It is something that we could not have controlled or made happen. It is something that we do not have the power or wherewithal or even will to desire to happen. But God. And if you trusted in Jesus today, it's not so much a credit to you, although I praise God for that. But if you trust in Jesus today, it's because you recognize that He is so much better than what this world has to offer. And He is so much greater than your sin. But see, that idea would not come from you. That idea comes from God. And it's because the Holy Spirit changed your heart and helped you to be born again. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you have not trusted in Jesus yet, if you have not followed Christ, but even maybe as you're hearing this, you're curious and you're wondering, what does this life look like? Who is this Jesus that raises people from the dead? How can my life be one filled with joy and excitement and wonder forever? Because that is what he promises to do for his people, giving them the riches of his grace forever. Then maybe the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart. And I want to encourage you to take the next step and talk to the person next to you or you know, talk to one of the counselors or you know, talk to us and, and ask more about how you can follow Jesus, how you can repent and believe, how you can put your life in God's hands because he's the only one who made you then who can save you who can change you and who can bring you to heaven forever so I'm going to go ahead and pray and close us uh, and then during community group time um, here's some things you can discuss and you don't have to discuss this you can talk about other things too but I'll leave it up to how you guys lead discussions but um, the idea is really to, to wrap our hearts and our minds around this idea of what God has done to, to save people like us. Okay. So number one, but God changed everything. Why did God make you alive? 
if you are a Christian. Why? And as you're asking that, maybe you're thinking, you know what, there's all these ways in which I don't deserve this. There's all these ways in which I fought God. There's all these ways in which I argued with Him and I pushed back and I despised my church and I hated God's people. Many of those things might be true. But God. That's the key. The second thing then is, if you're a Christian, why should your salvation humble you and impact your daily life? Why should living for God and desiring God become more and more of a treasure to you because you love Him? That's what God wants. What brings God glory is a greater love from us towards Him in life and a greater love from us towards others in life. So at the end, it's about your heart changing. And your heart reveals change when you recognize how good the gospel is, how great God is, and how beautiful it is to be saved in this undeserving way. That humbles us, and that changes us. So those are a few things that you can talk about. So let me go ahead and pray to close us. Um, did you have a song you wanted to close with as well? Again. Um, Let's do Living Hope again. Okay, okay good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much, God, for this time that we have. And just a reminder, Lord, from your word, God, of how great the gospel is. Of how deserving, undeserving, Lord, we were and are, but how much you loved us. That even before the foundation of the world, Lord, that you called people to yourself and, and that you helped them to be born again in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and Lord that you broke the chains Father of a totally depraved people in their hearts so that we can see the beauty of your son Jesus and we can repent and believe in him thank you Father that this whole entire life of following Jesus is a journey that Lord we don't come out on the other side perfect, as if we would begin to do everything right. But Lord, because our hope is in you, we can look forward to an eternity in which that would be true. And we can follow Christ every step of the way with his people so that we can encourage each other in obedience and in joy in pursuing this truth. So Lord, be with us. Strike our hearts deeply with the beauty that is your gospel. Remind us, Father, again and again, but God, and help us, Lord, to love you with our lives. Help us, Lord, to respond to you as we sing. Help us to encourage each other as we share. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.